The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. to Fresh FM Broadcasting from the Golden Bay Studio. Moomoo land indeed. Okay, in the studio with me today we've got Clint Risman. Awesome. 
a doctor in earth sciences. I better turn your microphone on. I said that I might do that. G'day. Yeah, g'day. <laughs> welcome to the welcome to the studio in Golden Bay. This is a uh, show we're kindly sponsored by Solly's Golden Bay Dolomite, actually, and it's on every second Friday. And occasionally, I have guests in, and this is an occasional time. Welcome. Thanks, Mark. That's great to be here. Well, yeah, you're welcome. Okay, at the moment, you've been doing a survey of uh, farmland in East Harkaga, um, radiometric surveying, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so what are you measuring as you radiometrically survey the valley? Well, what we're measuring, and it's you can't see it, but all around us there is natural radiation coming out of the ground, um, and we've got a sensor that can pick that up. It's a little bit... I mean, if you could visualise it as a bit like steam coming off the ground. Where's this uh, radiation coming from? It's coming from all the different minerals in the soil and rock. And so that radiation occurs naturally. And the type of radiation that comes out of the ground and the amount varies with the type of soil you have, the type of rock you have, um, how much organic carbon's in the soil, for example. Yeah, so, so it's not... Um, radioactivity that's fallen upon us from Chernobyl or nuclear testing over time that's decaying away this is natural stuff that's in three of them are natural, three of the ones we're measuring are naturally occurring and the minerals that make up the earth's crust very naturally occurring, one of them however is actually from say like Chernobyl or more more recently uh, Fukushima or nuclear testing in the Pacific, so it falls out and accumulates in our soils and places, and we can measure that. Is there much of that stuff? It, it's like it, it seems so far away, and tiny little molecules are floating through the atmosphere. Yeah. How many of those things are there, and, and how likely is it that would have fallen Golden Bay? Um, there's not a lot. In fact, in some places we can't detect that sort of fallout, but and other areas it can accumulate but it's not dangerous. It's yeah. not at concentrations that are dangerous to people. Yeah, okay. So the, the the radiation is all from minerals that were eroded away and the the just sitting there sort of decaying as part of the soil. What's that going to tell you about the soil? Well the great thing about this is it's it's picking up like a fingerprint of where that soil came from, other type of rocks and minerals it's made of. It's telling us about its texture as well. Is it made of big gravel clasp, big cobbles of gravel or boulders, or is it made up of lots of clay or silt or fine material? Couldn't we just dig a hole and find find this information? What what more uh, are you going to learn by doing this? How will it how, um, affect how we look at our soils? Yeah. Um, you could dig a lot of holes, but you'd have to dig a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and the cool thing is the radiation is actually providing us with a measure of those things. But, of course, we go out and we check it. We dig holes, working with the farmers in the catchment and diggers, having a look just to confirm, oh, what does that signature mean? We have a good sense of what it might mean, but we're always out there ground-truthing it, checking it. So when you're measuring, how big an area can you measure at once? Well, it depends on what sort of resolution you want. So for this survey, we're trying to get down to what we call sub-paddock scale. So we're surveying at 20 metre spaces. So it's very high resolution. And that gives us pretty, you know, very high resolution coverage relative to, say, our existing soil maps, which are very good. 
But if you're trying to make decisions or management decisions at a paddock scale on a farm, and most farmers are in my understanding, yeah. it's not going to be resolved enough to show how the soil is varying because the way our soil varies is so critical for managing things like nitrogen loss or other contaminants. Yep. So will some of this information show us soils that can hold on to nutrients better and and prevent leaching? Will it lead us to ways to making soils actually be able to do that that can't do that currently? Is that yeah, a, is that I a think thing? the main thing is actually saying, hey, our soils vary a lot. New Zealand's, you know, famed for being one of the most geologically diverse countries in the world. And across our paddocks, I think most farmers recognise there's heaps of variability. And as your soils vary, we call it their uh, susceptibility or their risk to loss of things also varies. So what this does is give us a picture of what's under the hood in terms of, hey, this area could be more leaky than this area over here. And within a paddock, you could have quite profound differences in how leaky a soil is. And when uh, my experience is when farmers have that knowledge, they can manage very, in a very targeted way to support reductions and losses. Yeah, okay. And, and you're talking about losses of greenhouse gases particularly? or, or oh, Everything what, what actually. So when we're doing this for people in different settings around New Zealand, we're also doing it to support more efficient irrigation. But soil properties control so much of the variability in the type and severity of water quality issue you have. Yes, land use, wherever there's humans, urban, rural, whatever it is, we all have an impact. But underneath that human layer, there's this incredible diversity in our landscape. And that has a big say over whether what, whether we're going to have an issue. Yeah. So you're, you're talking like geological scale, aren't you? Underneath us is a we think we're so big, but there's actually this bigger picture. Absolutely. The world's yeah. doing things that we don't actually fully understand. Yeah, Mother Nature's playing a massive role in controlling outcomes. And that occurs at sub-paddock scale, it occurs at farm scale, it occurs at catchment, it occurs nationally. So when we're doing the survey, the reason we're doing it so fine-scaled is we want to be able to scale from paddock up to the valley the Takakiva Valley, yep. for example, so that we've got a much better handle on, hey, what can be done and where's the best place to make investment to support reductions? And the type of work we've done in other parts of New Zealand with this technology, the reductions have been around things like sediment loss. So for the Kaipara Harbour, um, for Northland, for example, a lot of erosion occurring there. So radiometrics is very helpful because if you can imagine you've got just like your skin, if you cut yourself, you know, blood comes out, um, the earth's the same, but it bleeds radiation. You cut the surface of the earth, radiation comes out. So you can yep. map it to detect where erosion's occurring, as occurred in the past, and you can use that then to target your investment, for example, in planting trees to stabilise a slope or a part of a paddock which might need to have some fencing on it, for example. Would that sort of information come from, like, I guess in erosion stuff, you can't drive your thing up and down. It would come from satellites or planes or, or what, yeah. what would be doing the sensing of that? So the same sensor that we have, we, we've got ours on a quad bike or a side-by-side, -side, but you can also mount them on a, a drone or an aircraft and they fly them. So we use airborne or ground-based. Ground-based gives you the highest resolution. Yeah. 
Okay, and you said it's like 20 metres, is that 10 metres to either side, or, or 20 metres yep. to either side, and does that 20 metres into the ground, or, t- I mean, sorry, 10? So what it's doing is it's actually picking up radiation that's coming up into the atmosphere. So the sensor is what we call passive. It's not emitting anything. It's picking up what nature's actually emitting. So it's picking up that accumulated signal from beneath the land surface. And as you're driving along in the side-by-side, it's overlapping. But as it's accumulating, it's accumulating over an ellipse almost. And depending on how high off the ground you are, that ellipse can be anything from 12 hectares through to what we're doing, which is probably more around about 8 square metres to 10 square metres. And as you're driving along, so that's why we try and keep the spacing pretty tight so we don't miss small-scale features or small-scale variability. And particularly, like you said, things can change. Is that an underground stream might cause that, or is that two different types of land or soil or, or...? Absolutely, like if you have, you might look across a paddock and it all looks the same, Just you just see green grass, but when we do a survey it picks up the differences very clearly and so you might have a different type of rock or as you said a stream must have come past here uh, through the paddock, you know, many hundreds or thousands of years ago and it can pick up the variability because if a river's gone through it'll have different texture, might have different uh, types of rocks in geology, and that results in very different soil properties, different radiation signal. So we're picking up that variability with the sensor. With the um, the Tarkika Valley, though, isn't like the whole valley really the river, and it's it's all the same rocks sort of come down. They're just at different levels. Yeah, um, it's a really interesting area. There is marble in places around the fringes. There's obviously a lot of the rock from the rivers, but there's been a whole lot of different glacial episodes. And so there's these terraces, and you'll see them as you drive around. They're like steps in the landscape. And those terraces are associated with different glacial events, different uh, river stages, and they're also different ages. And we know, just like anything, over time... If it's an older part of the landscape, it's seen a lot more weather, a lot more rain, a lot more sun, a lot more... A lot more cosmic rays. Yeah, exactly. And as a consequence, uh, it typically matures, just like a wine or a cheese. Yeah. And that maturing has results in very different radiation signals. So we can pick up not just, hey, it's made up of this type of rock, but how old the land surface is, how stable it's been, and we can pick up things like, is my soil very well drained? Now drainage is very important. Does water go straight down? That's what we call a well-drained soil. Yeah. Or is water gonna pond or run off laterally? Sort of poorly drained to imperfectly drained soils are more likely to uh, not move down. And the so can you see that by uh, the yeah. emissions of radiation where things are ponding underground and, and... Yes, so you can actually pick up where water is accumulated. There's uh, in the subsoil, in the subsurface. Yeah. In fact, yesterday we were on a property where I had identified what I thought would be either shallow water table or peat from a wetland. Yeah. And lo and behold, they were. And that's because radiation is very sensitive sort of controlled by those factors very in a very sensitive way and it's kind of i guess the crudest analogy would be like a fish finder yeah you know or a 
your sonograph, but instead of actually, we're using the radiation to image the subsurface, what's beneath our feet? Because in many systems, not only is it the engine room for farm production, it's also the engine room for determining whether nitrogen or phosphorus or sediment or a coli is lost to the environment. Some places there's less risk of that than others. And so we really want to hone in on, hey, where are these areas so we can really work to, I guess, offset the risk? Yeah. So can you also see like things like um, phosphate loss or, or potassium loss? It, D does it leave plumes in the ground? Is, is that something? Can you get a picture yeah. of that sort of thing happening or that, so that it can be... Because um, you can plant some things that soak it up and, and things like that. Is that possible from this information? Yeah, so one example is that when you have very young sediment that's deposited by a recent flood, it tends to have more potassium in it naturally that's really obvious so areas that have more flood risk we've we see this high potassium yeah areas away from the flood risk we don't but the other thing we can do and we've done with some farms around southland is we can use this information in combination with their soil test data to produce maps very high resolution maps of how their phosphorus varies oh yeah how their pH varies, how their potassium, and what those farmers are doing is they're saying, well, hey, I can use my variable rate fert spreader, and I can ensure that I'm only putting on the amount of fertilizer I need. And that's really important because, A, there's a lot of environmental benefit from really only putting on what's required, and secondly, there's a cost saving, there's an efficiency yep. here. So, when we take soil samples in conjunction with this information, we can help support that type of understanding um, of where is our phosphorus elevated uh, from land use, etc. Yep. And will you then get like a, a full district map well, well, of the whole area that you're doing? Is this publicly available information? Is this something that um, the, anyone can see or is, or is this all private to the landowners? I, our job's really to provide the information, um, to, to get the information, that's not really our call, but I think the good thing is that this information is just about Mother Nature, it's just about the earth, yep. um, and it can really help support really targeted actions, um, and if people are looking to sort of use this really to be more efficient or to really focus their efforts on their farming, yeah. um, it's really useful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we've got quite a few examples where we've done this in other parts of New Zealand where as soon as this information is given to farmers and they understand why this area, for example, we might identify an area that's very sensitive, what we've seen, my experience has been they'll change their practices. Yeah. And they'll say, okay, well, I don't want to winter my animals there or this isn't probably a good area for high intensity operation. I'm, I'm going to go and make sure I, that area is treated you know, differently yeah, to reduce yeah. their losses. You know, just kind of thinking like you're not required to give it to the council or anything like that. No, then, not, not that I'm aware yeah, of. I, yeah. I, I just do the science and I, I leave the, uh, the logistics yeah, and yeah. that sort of stuff done. Yeah, cool. Because um, I, I guess if you're looking at Golden Bay, it, it's a unique place and unique 
water systems and stuff and um, how can we best use this information to actually make streams better how and cleaner and you know do the right thing because that's what most people want to do yeah yeah what what sort of picture will we as farmers get from this information from you any recommendations or is it something that we've got to sort of interpret ourselves and and kind of kind of weigh up the the theory of it with how we might make it reality what we've done in the past is when we've got this information we compare it with really quite high resolution maps of how water moves and that's called hydrology right yeah and we use the lidar which is a very high resolution laser scanning that was done of the takaka valley and we use that information to help us get a better sense of not just the soil but how water's moving through it and that's really helpful and the way we've done that with people in the past is they've got a visual representation of where the water is moving on their property and of course water is the thing that carries contaminants to streams or carries it to an aquifer so by imaging and understanding what we're finding are people responding very differently to their paddock selection where would i put this crop what are the environment consequences of doing this here versus over here and they're using that information to make much more sustainable choices in terms of management now in terms of farmers the objective is you don't just walk and say here we go here's the data yeah the idea is to support them through a process of saying okay if i do have a high risk area what can i do what are the tools and the great thing is there are a huge amount of tools particularly at a farm system level to support reductions and losses yeah yeah because we we need those tools it, i've get the feeling that there's a lot of um, legislation coming and requirements but we just don't know what to do or, yes. or, or how to do it and yeah. and so using this what what sort of tool is it what can we do what yeah so one of the neat things is that when you combine this understanding of the landscape that's quite subtle and nuanced um, there's been research basically saying yes land use is the main key over poor water quality nobody disputes that yeah. that's fine but the research that's coming through internationally more and more is saying, yes, but Mother Nature can often be responsible for a very large part of the variability we see in the quality of our streams and our aquifers. So we want to harness the role Mother Nature's playing and tune our farm systems more effectively to that. So a practical example is someone who might be putting a wintering crop in for their animals, their animals need to feed over the winter. It's not a great idea sometimes to put in an area that's high risk. And, and what do you mean by high risk? So it might be an area that runs off, um, it might be an area that generates a lot of sediment, yeah. or it might be an area that leaks a lot of nitrate. Um, so we can identify those areas and then the farmers can use their knowledge of their farm system. Often sometimes um, you know, we've seen farmers just adapt as soon as they get the information they're innovating some people have shifted away from cultivation because yep. cultivation mineralizes a lot of nitrogen in the soil and that can be lost and they've shifted to direct drilling or they're changing the grass water they're putting plantain or low nitrogen loss or deeper rooting species to capture nitrogen in those areas so there's a lot of management tools but that's where the farm system experts can come in as well and really support that because you want to have a really viable business but you want one that's inherently sustainable and 
we're trying to sort of package this information to support that type of approach. Yeah. You said that your sensor could be on, on a drone and stuff. Could you use a similar thing to maybe fly over your farm and test for greenhouse gases so that, and, and I'm thinking of the future, like you'd monitor your herd's losses that day because there's just a drone flying above them sucking it on the gas and, and testing it there and then. Is that the sort of technology, is it adaptable there, to that? There because is some we te- will get charged for it at some stage, sorry. Yes, no, you're right. There is some technology out there and I've been using it particularly for um, geothermal volcanic systems monitoring and also for methane from landfills and from other areas. Um, and there are technologies used that are trying to apply that to paddock scale, but it's still very early days, I would say. Yeah. Um, you know, it can be done, I think, quite well at maybe some university student level where they have all the time in the world. Yep. Um, and there's research that's going on in that space. But I, I do think in, you know, a few decades' time, we might be in a position where we have something a lot more reliable like that, but not yet. Yep. So with the data that you're, you're getting... Will it show places where maybe we should plant trees or you retire that area from farming or you yeah. plant something else like like things that have can suck certain nutrients out of the ground? Is that sort of what we should be looking at? Yeah. Rid of, is cadmium a, a problem or something, you know? Yeah, well, a, a good example is at Lincoln University, they've got a research farm at Ashley Dean and it's on very gravelly soils that leak nitrogen. And so they've asked us to do a survey using the same technology to help them identify where they would put trees. So they'll put the trees where it's leakiest. Yeah. And then they're designing the dairy platform around it. Now, this is a very experimental and it is perhaps not as pragmatic in some instances, but that's an example of how they're looking to design future systems. Yes, the great thing is it's very good for identifying where you might be able to put a wetland in. And some people know, but many don't, that wetlands are a wonderful way of removing contaminants generated from land use. And if you can put them in the right place, they can do an, a really good role of offsetting losses from farm and over the longer term sequestering carbon so this the idea is to integrate all these bits of high-tech information so that we can really identify hey there's a great place for you to put an investment in a wetland yeah or a piece of work that we're doing um, we've identified an area where the dairy farms lose losing a lot of nitrate into an aquifer and we're going through, well, how do we support those reductions? Because we want to see the, the amount of nitrogen loss reduced. And so one of the things the farmers open to considering is a, a whole host of changes in their farm yeah. system. Um, where, you, where you say someone's losing a lot of nitrogen into the aquifer, is that purely because of the geology of the place or it's not... That he's just putting it on at the wrong time or he, you know, he just doesn't yeah. know or, it's yeah. the sensitivity of the landscape I could take exactly the same farm put it over the road and it wouldn't do that because of the, the type of soil variability there is or the yeah, geological well. variability that's what we're wanting to find out here and in that instance of that farmer they've got a terrace on the face of a they're on the top of a terrace and the terrace face there's a whole lot of springs coming out which have quite high nitrogen and the goal is to reduce that and historically in the past they've just drained those wetland areas 
Yeah. Now what that farmer is looking to do is put, reinstigate those wetlands because they will also act as a natural scrubber and remover of nitrate. And then the water that leaves that wetland then goes into the stream or then enters the groundwater. How does it not just become a toxic wetland? Um, because Sorry. of the processes that are occurring in the wetland system. So the wetlands have got all these amazing microbes and organic carbon in them, which are really good at removing nitrate and nitrogen quite naturally. And of course, you've got to design the wetland so it's not overwhelmed. Yep. So you're always thinking about, hey, is this the right size? Is it going to do the business? Is it going to be a healthy environment? So you always scale things effectively. But wetlands are naturally a very effective way of naturally removing nitrogen. And in fact, that's what they did a lot on in the past anyway. Yeah. Um, when you say wetland, is it like specific New Zealand forest does a better job because it's New Zealand soils in geology? Or is there a better species to use than, than what you, you know, what's local seems to be the best, you'd think. But is there something better that you can do? Yeah, I'm no uh, ecologist. In fact, I'm pretty bad when it comes to identifying plants. But the, the thing that I understand anyway is that it's actually the ability to slow water down, allow, allow it to interact with all the organic matter that's in the ground. Yeah. Organic matter is wonderful at supporting the removal of contaminants, and that's what we're trying to achieve here. Now, I think a lot of people, if you leave a wetland or revert it, let it revert, often there's a seed bank in there that'll help support um, I guess plants, native plants regenerating, I'm not sure. But an ecologist and specialist wetland folk are wonderful at saying, hey, this would probably be the best type for this region or, or this setting. Yeah. Yeah, because some you know, some species it look good but they take a long time and they don't necessarily you want it to happen quite quickly too, don't yeah. you? Well it's amazing how rapidly you actually see these systems regenerate. We're on a farm in Southland, where they'd spent the last 20 years reinstigating wetlands on their farm system because they'd noted a lot of runoff because they were in a hilly area. Yeah. And they said, well, look, those wetland areas that we'd once cleared, they were like 2% of the farm and they are costing about a lot more money to keep in production. Yep. And yeah, because so they're boggy. Yeah, they, they want to be a wetland. <laughs> right. you know? yeah, yeah. And so why engineer something when Mother Nature's already got the perfect solution there in terms of that setting? So they've let them come back and they showed us some photos and over the course of five years the difference was in terms of recolonisation was incredible. And those wetlands are functioning very effectively at removing uh, a large proportion of sediment and other contaminants. So um, what sort of contaminants are they, have they got down there? So a lot of the traditional ones we're looking at um, e. coli which is uh, I guess fecal bacteria um, and that's also nitrogen and there's lots of different forms of nitrogen so I won't bore you with that but we've got to be aware of the different forms there's phosphorus and obviously sediments now sediment could be silt and sand but often sediment is a bit of a, a mix of things it'll have a bit of bacteria stuck to it a virus a bit of metal or a bit of phosphorus a bit of nitrogen so fine sediment, stopping that getting into our waterways is a really effective way of reducing contaminant losses. So a lot of the time, and a lot of the research shows, it's those very small streams, just where they start, that can actually spit out the most contaminant. And interestingly, 
a lot of the recommendations are, hey, make those little areas like a wetland because they can trap and they can support uh, removal. And so there's lots of really innovative tools coming out around saying, hey, let's work with nature, let's use our understanding of what Mother Nature's always done and reinstigate some of those in key areas. Yeah, great. Cool. I'm going to play a little song for a minute. We just have a break from talking and we'll be back soon. Oh, see, it's been playing for quite a while. We've been grooving to the KLF and didn't know about it. I'll turn that off and we'll turn this one on. He's lost all his corn And now where's the money To pay off his loan He lost all his corn Can't pay off his loan He lost all his corn Well, a poor old dirt farmer He only grows
old dirt farmer. Uh, welcome back to Fresh FM. You're broadcasting from the Golden Bay studio. This show's on every second Friday and then replayed every other Friday than that. So if you're listening next week, you're a week out, but it's still there. Uh, we're kindly sponsored by Solly's Golden Bay Dolomite. And if you don't know what Dolomite is, it's a great soil conditioning fertiliser made up of ground-up bits of Mount Burnett. And uh, if you'd like to get some on your soil, give Solly's a ring, 525-8611. Ask for Ross, he'll see you right. Okay, right, welcome back to the studio. We've got in here Clint. And Clint's an earth scientist, and he's been measuring the the radiometric decay of soils in the valley, up Upper Tarkaka Valley. And he's going to tell us all about... Um, how we can best use this information to use our soils to their best uh, ability, I guess. Um, Can you tell us anything about the biological aspects of the soil? Do you measure anything about the biology or is it a a chemical analysis? Inherently, because it's picking up mineral signals, it's chemical. But having said that, of course, you cannot decouple the soil biology from its chemistry and vice versa and one of the things it's very good at picking up is organic carbon and we know that's kind of like the substrate for life you know heaps of organisms are good you know we we look at a lot really well um, soils with really abundant organic carbon have good structure they tend to be um, quite healthy from a microbiome and ecological perspective and it can pick that information up uh, relatively well. For example, yesterday, you know, it can it identified very readily where there was a former wetland, and we excavated that area, and you can see a very, very different picture of what's going on underground. And that picture is important because when we see differences in the colour of the soil when we dig a hole, or in its composition. I sort of use that, or a lot of scientists read that information about what are the processes that are occurring. And a lot of these processes are actually driven by microbes. They're driven by biological activity, as you probably know. And one of the key processes we're looking at is one that people get freaked out about. It's called redox. Redox reactions, but it's essentially just the process of stagnation. And, for example, if you had a vase, you put your flowers in it, it disappeared for a couple of weeks and you came back. What do you what do you see? Yeah, but stagnant water around yeah. my roses and, and it's yeah, stinky. Bit and, of a stink. And the the reason is is that the bacteria have been saying, Well, I want to break down that organic matter. I love organic matter. But to break it down they've had to utilize other chemicals like oxygen out of the air and then when you pull out oxygen out of the water, it starts to stack become stagnant. And it goes through these processes. And one of the other things it loves to remove um, when there's lots of organic carbon around is nitrate. pulls that out. So we're looking for areas in the landscape. We're reading the soil, reading the radiation, where some of those natural processes beneath our feet are actually helping to remove nitrogen naturally. Wow. So could you, say, look at a, a... Uh, read out of your data and tell us where we should put a line of you know plants to absorb the nitrogen from the farm like if if we put a row of things here here and here you'd cut down all leaching by you know 80 percent or something like that can you tell us that yeah 
a lot of the soil information that's out there, they have models that they try to use to simulate how much will be lost. Now, one of the biggest limitations of these models is not having the right soil information. So these very high resolution maps we made can be used to support those tools. Very good tools, really useful for helping understand, but they need the right context. So we can give that context. And if you find an area that's in conjunction with some of these modeling tools that say, hey, look, this is a high loss area, there's a whole raft of things you could potentially do and some people have looked at tree planting particularly things like poplars and others which are really good at sucking up nitrogen yeah yeah okay yeah yeah so that with the biological information that that you're getting um can you tell what's new like uh can you tell if we could sequester carbon can you tell what's what we've lost can you tell how damaging our farm systems are in, in the carbon sort of sphere? Not so much. I mean, you could do comparative analysis, but you'd have to survey a natural state area. So it'd have to be an area that's sort of equivalent to the existing farms that's had zero history of land use, and then make a comparison. And it gets very difficult yep. to do that. That's so that you can get that baseline of this natural yes. background that's always there and, and emitting its, its And thing. then you yeah. can compare apple. You can say, hey, well, this one's different. And some some parts of the world have done those sort of act, uh, exercises. There's some research in New Zealand that's looked at differences in, for example, wetlands, because they occur in most environments, be it natural state environments or productive environments and they can compare the state of them. Some regional councils and district councils actually have assessments of the health and the quality of wetlands and other environments, both those in natural state areas and those in um, farm and urban environments. And they're really good sources of information for that type of type of thing. Have you ever measured town? Have you ever taken one of your sensors around town and seen what it emits. Yeah, it's really cool actually. Well, it's interesting the airborne surveys that were done they fly over those areas as well and because there's so much concrete you get a really funky sort of gamma radiation signal. Yeah. Um, it's quite different to what you see across the natural landscape and so you can pick up towns very easily they have a kind of when you see it in the, the sort of false colour imagery, they've got this sort of ghostly green sort of glow of thorium. Yep. Oh, yeah, thorium. it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, cool. And I don't know why that is, but it might be a con constituent of concrete and maybe tarsi or something. Yep. Yeah, okay, just in those minute trace amounts. And, and that's what you're always talking about, isn't it? It's like these very small yes. things going on. Yeah, and I think that's really important. You're right. I mean, people get worried about these, but these are tiny. And the, it's just that the sensor is very sensitive to them and gamma radiation, you know, is able to be picked up. But there's only a handful of those uh, minerals that emit enough radiation to even be measured uh, easily. So that's why we're really focused on picking up those signals of the, the strongest signals, and even those are very weak. Um, yeah. Can you, for instance, get a picture of the underground, like if there was a pocket of gold there or something? Well, you, you're right. I mean, this is, in some instances in the past, this technology has been used for exploring for mineral deposits. Yeah. Because as you might expect, when you have a concentration of metals or gold or whatever it is you're looking at, they also have different radiation signals and different radiation profiles. 
So a lot of the work that's done this historically and where we are taking it from when yep. we take the airborne is actually from a, a mineral exploration survey. Yeah, okay. And some people thought, oh, it's mineral. Well, to me it's data and it's the same data that can be used to support environmental and actually the same data can be used to support better soil maps or better geological mapping for hazards, not just for mineral exploration. So. I'm a bit agnostic to where the data comes from. It's more about, hey, can it add us value? Can it help us on our journey to have something that's um, inherently more sustainable? Yep. Um, you mentioned variable rate fertiliser and, and stuff. It, and is that a consequence of your Southland work? Is that something that's quite big in Southland? Is it happening? Is it Because I, I thought it was kind of a hard thing to get the trucks and, and stuff. Well, I think it's becoming more important because the cost of fertilizer has gone up so much but in Europe and North America there is quite widespread application of variable rate and the sensor we're using um, they use equivalent in Europe and North America for producing these maps to guide their variable rate spreaders. One a couple of farmers in Southland we're working with they've got their own spreader and they have like a uh, trimble is one of the, yep. the guidance systems they use. So the map gets plugged into the brain of the um, spreader and as it, and the fertiliser guy says, well, actually, the soil pH is fine here, but over here you need to put in a lot more lime than over here. And it just helps to ensure that there's efficient use and less wastage. Um, worst case scenario is people over-apply and they lose um, nutrient or they lose... Um, critical calcium and magnesium because of over-application. Yeah, so the, this um, data that you're getting will kind of show which direction that loses. Is there a way to extract it back out? Like, is there a place that maybe you could mine back your own yep. leachate or, or Yeah, something? well, a really good example. One of the farms we're working on, the guys took over, uh, he's leasing a dairy farm. Um, he's leasing to own, he's already got one. And he did a lot of soil testing because he wasn't entirely sure how much phosphorus, olsen P and potassium and whatnot was on the property. And what we found out through doing this analysis was that he's probably got six or seven seasons worth of phosphorus that he doesn't need to apply in over, around about half the area of the farm. Yeah. So for him, that's a big saving. And environmentally, it's a great thing too because why would you apply fertilizer when it's way above the agronomic optimum so he's very he works that way his other farms very you know is really online with what's required this farm he's going to say hey well i'm not going to apply fertilizer here because of or particularly the phosphorus because it's already way above what i require i'm going to let that do its thing just monitor it keep an idea of how the phosphorus tracking over time yeah because some of that might be locked up as well, is that right? That you know, it's not actually available. It's part of another yes. mineral. Or, or yep. That's why they do the the tests that they do. Really, are about what is bioavailable. So there's different tests you can do to determine whether the phosphorus can be taken up or not. And the testing he's been doing through his FERC company has been very specific to that. And they're using that information to then decide about why. You know, this this bioavailable phosphorus is already very high here. That's fantastic. We don't need to touch it by applying anything more. Let's focus on the areas where we may need to maintain yep. it. Can you make the, the non-bioavailable phosphorus bioavailable? In soils, to some extent, 
um, in natural systems, let alone uh, agricultural ones, phosphorus gets what they call occluded over time. So naturally, it doesn't matter whether it's a farm or not, actually sort of migrates into the minerals and it gets locked up. Yep. And there is, you know, potential, I guess, to in the future, maybe there's some technology that can be made to extract that. But again, the cost of extracting it and the technologies we have probably really aren't at that level just yet. Yep. Yeah, no, but there's not some plant that could exude a juice that might dissolve it out. Yeah, there's some really cool stuff. You're right. I mean, in natural systems, there's um, plant roots, for example, that exude, you know, they get to a point, some trees are growing and they're saying, hey, look, we've we've used up most of the mineral phosphorus, the phosphorus that's in the rocks, it's starting to slow down. And when they drop seeds and leaves, there's phosphorus in those, very high phosphorus in, in seeds in particular and in leaves. And that's a form of organic phosphorus, which is also very sticky. So plants are smart. So they figured out, oh, look, we don't have much mineral. I will start exuding an enzyme which selectively targets organic phosphorus to release it so I can get my phosphorus hit. So It's pretty cool, eh? Very cool. And I think there is, as you know, probably a bit of research that's going on on how you simulate or stimulate that phosphorus release longer term. But it's not, um, it's very fascinating, but it's not really my forte in terms of what type of plant species or microbial or fungal communities are involved in those processes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so where did you come from? What, what got you into this? What's your career path been? It's been quite varied. I, um, I've always loved sort of earth science. I was, you know, quite a few friends who liked climbing mountains. I was always more interested in looking at the rocks or natural systems. So I just naturally gravitated towards that. I ended up working in um, a whole, I studied overseas, but I ended up working um, in a whole range of different areas from mineral exploration through to looking at renewable energy um, in my PhD and also looking at greenhouse gas assessments but my study in America was in using water chemistry and hydrogeology and anything chemical anything isotopic yeah I loved it and that's sort of geeking out over chemistry the reason is that for me at least the chemistry of water the chemistry of rock the chemistry of our environment the air and the gases tells us so much and it's often stuff we can't see and so they're a really nice telltale sign of what's going on beneath us and a great fingerprint for unraveling even just the smallest sort of piece of mother nature's secrets so yeah, yeah I, I think it's a privilege to be able to sort of work in that area yeah cool so how long have you been um well I'd, I guess at some stage you got your doctorate. Um, how long have you been doing this? What's, yeah. um, I guess I, you know, my studies were in you know, probably early 2000s where I was sort of teaching a, a teaching fellow at Lincoln Uni for a while. But I was also a high school teacher at Christchurch Boys High, chemistry, maths, and yep. while I was doing my PhD. Oh, well, while well, you're doing it. Yeah, yeah which cool. was really silly. Um, but... The school was really good and allowed me to do that, gave me the flexibility. And so I worked in those spaces and I really enjoyed working with the kids. Um, 
but there was really only so many times you can teach photosynthesis before yeah. you get a bit bored. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least, at least I did anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, reinforcing all those fundamentals didn't sort of give you a great um, insight into just the basis of chemistry and biology and stuff, or, or was it? It's just it's too simple. No, it's wonderful. It's really good stuff, and I think it's really important. But what I really like is probably a more integrated or a holistic view because that's how the water cycle works that's you know even with gases you know that we're measuring in the earth's surface they may have come from kilometers down yeah um, or even some water and so we're always trying to say hey let's better understand the dynamics it's bigger than we think isn't it I, oh, there's a lot I often like to say we don't live in the environment we are the environment yep. because it is bigger than we think and and it's easy to stand here thinking oh, i'm standing on top of it but we're not we're just like a little bit of a bacteria ourselves yeah it's it's an amazing thing because sometimes when you start visualizing the world around you uh, for example you know just standing still where you are potentially if you're in a valley somewhere there's water moving beneath your feet yeah it might be pretty slow but it's there um the water that moves in a stream uh, during the summer if you haven't had any rain it's been a bit wet up here it's been a dry summer almost all that water in that stream is from groundwater almost a hundred percent yeah and you know all these variations are occurring around us all the time and you know trying to sort of better understand them um you know is, is a privilege um but you know the more we know, the more we don't know. If you know yeah, I mean. yeah, yeah. Opens a can of worms sometimes, yeah. doesn't it? Your yeah. knowledge and yeah. what does that all mean? Um, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, it's been great having you. No, thank you very much. And I guess the main thing is to take science and bridge that divide between hey, there's some funky science or some stuff that's quite high tech. But what we really want to be able to do is translate that into practical solutions to support people uh, really succeed with their environmental journey so I think science is cool but application yeah is where you get the the real value out of it yeah yeah and and being able to do practical science is really cool too rather than just teaching a, a theory yes. of it yeah 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 is it your idea um like is this what you really wanted to do was this sort of practical science what was your dream when you were a kid um I think it was it's evolved, but I, I think in particular, I loved I love seeing efficiency. I know it's a strange yeah. thing, but man, I get excited when you can actually see people succeed in something. Yeah. And at the same time, you know that's not just financially; that's environmentally; that's with their own personal values and vision. So that's what cool about applying. I love applying science. It's got. Yeah. And I love the purists who do fundamental research. That's cool. You know, study a termite mound or something. That's awesome. But I get my jellies from saying, hey, is this going to fix a problem? Is this, is this going to help people move forward? Yeah. And so to me, that's really what motivates me. It's that the sort of stuff that I get a lot of satisfaction from. Cool. You're obviously optimistic about the human race. I think you have to be at some level. Um, you can be blown away by... Uh, all the negative stuff, but yep. there's some great opportunities, and I really do believe there's uh, a pathway forward for for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's no, all good. Okay. Well, we're going to end the show now. That there will soon be a crossover back to Nelson, 
I'd like to thank you all for listening today and thanks to Solly's Golden Bay Dolomite for sponsoring this show. Uh, we're going to go out with the skeptics. podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show first broadcast on fresh fm the top of the south's community access media station with support from new zealand on air the funding of access media makes these podcasts possible to find similar programs by other community access media stations go online to accessmedia.nz if you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station please contact us Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details.